0: Quick disclaimer, the views and opinions expressed in this podcast are provided for informational purposes only and should not be construed as an offer to buy or sell any securities or to make or consider any investment or course of action. For more information, go to bestevershow.com.
1: Understanding that you're not going to have all of your numbers airtight, 100% correct, that there's a risk that you underestimated a particular expense. One of the biggest mistakes that I've seen is people not setting aside enough for operating expense reserves.
2: Welcome to the Best Ever Show, the world's longest running daily commercial real estate podcast. Our hosts interview commercial real estate experts every day to get you the best
0: advice ever with none of the fluffy stuff.
1: Hello, Best Ever listeners, and welcome to another episode of the Best Real Estate Investing Advice Ever Show. Today, we're launching a new series focused on the fundamentals of multifamily investing with our good friend, Matt Faircloth. I'll let him tell you all about it in just a moment. But first, I want to let you know that today's episode is brought to you by BAM Capital, a trusted multifamily syndicator that has never missed a preferred payment and never lost an LP's investment. To learn more about investment opportunities with BAM Capital, visit capital.thebamcompanies.com or click the link in the show notes. And with
0: that, I'll let Matt Faircloth take it from here
2: what's going on best ever community this is matt faircloth doing the guest host of the best ever podcast here super grateful for you guys being here and grateful for the opportunity for our company derosa to be a contributor to the best ever show we got a great show for you guys today we're going to be talking about underwriting for multifamily and what better co-host brother from another mother to come join me today is my partner herve francois to come talking about underwriting herve how are you very
1: well, man. Thanks very much for having me. So excited, pumped up to be here with the best ever community.
2: Let's get going. Let's get going. Yeah, let's do it. So guys, underwriting is kind of like the unsung hero in a lot of ways in, in multifamily. Everybody wants to talk about how much money you can raise and how many deals you, you've done, which is all money and hunter. But a lot of the real implementation side, the real dollars and cents are made in the creation of a plan and then in the implementation of that plan. In some ways, i read the book Traction. Not the visionary side of the business, the integrator side of the business. So we're going to talk about underwriting, and that is a department in our company, DeRosa, that Irvay is in charge of. He's not the underwriter. Irvay our hunter. So Irvay goes out and creates the opportunities, kicks the doors in that are closed for DeRosa, and <laughs> reels in the fish, so to speak. But those fish are cleaned and fried by the underwriter that works under Irvay's division of the company. So before we get further here, I want to just highlight something. We've talked on these episodes and we'll continue to talk about the four quadrants, aka the core four method that we've broken our company up in. And it's allowed us to really, really scale quickly, 10xing our business over years. And by implementing this process, if you guys are a hands on multifamily operator, we believe that by you guys implementing a lot of the technology we talk about on these episodes, you guys can grow that way as well. So, Irvada, quick to quickly highlight, you're the hunter on the DeRosa team. And that is the first leg of the the stool here, the first superpower. So tell us briefly, the hunter does what? And then we're going to move into the other ones and get into the brain, which we're going to talk about today.
1: Great question, Matt. Basically, the hunter's responsibility is to go ahead and identify which market his team is going to invest by looking at a bunch of different metrics out there to identify what's an attractive market for the team to go ahead and invest. And once the hunter does that, it's the hunter's responsibility to go out there and develop relationships with brokers and folks other part of the real estate team, contractors, property managers, and so on and so forth, to start the process of looking for a property to acquire. So it is a process. It is putting the metrics in place to identify an attractive market from there, building relationships with the brokers to go out and find properties to acquire.
2: There you go. So the hunter finds the market. And then infiltrates that market for their business. Then the brain is the one that we're going to talk about today. And they take those opportunities and they take them and turn them into a business plan. The other two components on the team are the money, which is my side of the business, which is them providing the equity resources, the dollars and cents to invest in the deal. Then you got the hammer. That's Justin Fraser that's there to take all that potential energy that we've created there and turn it into reality. So. Today's conversation is about the brain. Like I said, in some ways, the unsung hero, the person that enjoys living in spreadsheets and sitting on a desk in the corner and squeezing out opportunity out of a potential deal, doing all the detective work that it takes. So let's talk about it. So, Irving, you work very closely with our underwriter. When you produce a deal, in some ways, the hunter and the brain are so much connected that there's a bit of a fuzzy gray area between those two seats. Sure. So when you produce an opportunity, you're already thinking of what our underwriter needs to create it, to take that into fruition. The broker sends you a deal, right? right. You're going to do some cursory overview on the deal, and then you're going to take it over to, hey, take us through that process on deal hits your desk to what you do first, and then your initial conversations on the underwriting team.
1: Absolutely. So the first thing that I do once a broker sends me a deal i want to make sure that the broker sends me the correct and updated information on that deal and it's typically three items for a quote unquote listed deal right and it's going to be number one the offering memorandum that that broker has put together the trailing 12 abbreviated as t12 that's the last 12 months of let's say profit and loss statements of that particular property and lastly the rent roll so i'm going to have all three of those documents But before digging into the numbers, and because I know I have our super heavy-duty underwriter to dive in on the numbers, I'm not going to touch the numbers as much as I'm going to probably open up, take a look at the offering memorandum, and I'm going to put together a summary sheet. I don't know if Matt and Justin even knows this, but I do a summary sheet on every single one of these properties that comes across my desk that we may be interested in acquiring. And that summary sheet is usually about a page, a page and a half long, but it's a summary of obviously the location also the number of units and how it's broken down by one bedrooms and two bedrooms and the average asking rent for those and the average square footage i'm going to also summarize who's the current property manager at what price it was bought several years ago and who's the current owner. I'm going to take a look at the amenities of that property, both interior and exterior. One of the first images I always jump to go to take a look at is the kitchen to see what condition it's in. And then, you okay. know, my light bulb will pop off and say there's an opportunity here because we can go ahead and improve all the kitchens in this property and so on and so forth. So I'm going to go ahead and do that summary. And truth be told, Matt, I'm cheating a little bit here, but because I know our market so, so well, I already have an idea when I glance at the numbers that this could be an interesting deal for us to go ahead and take a look at. So that's the very first thing that I'm doing, that one page summary on the deal before going ahead and even sending it to our heavy duty underwriter so he can go ahead and start analyzing and underwriting the deal.
2: Guys, I want to underscore a few things here. Number one, the second episode that DeRosa did for the contribution to the Best Ever Show, you guys want to go back and re-listen to. That's where Irve and I were on before. We talked about market. And the, one of the highlights there was that you got to pick one market, not seven, not 10, not 34, not even two, one market that you guys want to focus on. And one of the many, many benefits you get from being able to do that is, as Irve said, when a deal hits your desk, you're just like, "I get." they're asking... 105 a door every other thing i've seen in this market has been in 150 a door so either something's wrong or this is a really underpriced deal and this could be an opportunity yeah and you'll know that off the top of your head this is my market this is my sandbox i know what it should price in at i know what rents are because this is what i look at right Right. it's such a power And drilling into a specific market. It works both ways,
1: not only when I'm given a property and the broker tells me, well, this is how much the asking price is on a per door basis. And I look at that and I'm like, hmm, that seems well above other deals that have been sold in this market over the past couple of years. But it works in reverse when I'm shown a deal and the asking price is well below what other deals have sold in the market over the past 12 to 24 months. That tells him I could jump at it and say, oh, well, we got to go after this one because it's so attractive. But before I jump to that conclusion, I'm like, what's the location? What's going on? What's
2: wrong? I know something's wrong. The broker knows what they're doing too. Something's wrong. Let's, what's wrong first, right? It's so interesting. I also think in what you've taught me is a lot of things of what you're going to do. And listening to our audience here, before you send it over to your brain or even start underwriting yourself, if you are the brain, you're going to make sure this deal fits the buy box. And this sounds obvious, but you don't want to chase shiny nickels or waste your precious time underwriting a deal that is outside the buy box of your organization. Meaning you don't want to go taking something that you've agreed with your partners that you're not going to do. Hey, this deal actually looks pretty good. Let me go bring it to my money and my hammer person and say, no, we're looking for 50 to hundred units, not 10 units. Or we're looking for deals in Winston-Salem, North Carolina, not Raleigh, North Carolina. So the deal that gets sent to you by a broker could be inadvertently outside of your geographic buy box, outside of your size buy box. It may also be outside of your vintage buy box. So I'm not talking about wine when I talk about vintage. I'm talking about the age of the building when it was built. Some people only want to do stuff that was built after 1980, 1985, 2000, whatever. Other folks are okay with older assets that may have more issues, but you're going to get for a better price. Less folks are going to be interested in it. So if you know how to handle something built in the 70s or 60s, then you might want to add that to your buy box as well. Probably lowers your competition. But whatever your buy box is, you want to filter that deal. Before you send it to your underwriter and go spending their precious time on a deal, make sure that that deal fits the buy box your company has. So the survey said that he's gone and done that cursory overview, cursory evaluations. You throw it, then throw it off to your underwriter. Let's go through the data that they need to pull down. And and before I even say that, they're going to be taking a lot of their analysis and doing it in some form of an an analysis tool that's going to spit out green light, red light on this deal. There's all kinds of analysis tools out there. We have one in-house that our students get a copy of through our accelerator program. So those that are already enrolled in that, and there's a million others out there that you guys can use. And a lot of folks that I know that are in the multifamily world for better or for worse, have developed their own underwriting tools. That's what we did, and now we offer ours to our students. So in whatever tool you're using, the underwriter is going to then go collect data and drop it into their underwriting tool, and then they're going to play with it until the deal makes sense or it doesn't. So, Harvey, let's talk to some of the data they're going to pull down. What are some of the things that you think are the big rock data items that have to go in that sheet first?
1: Well, the first thing that our underwriter does is he goes ahead and takes that trailing 12, the T12 profit off yep. statement I was talking about, and he goes ahead and he puts it into his underwriting sheet just to really get a gauge. And we looking back over the past 12 months, the performance of this property, the volatility, particularly in the large line items, whether it's on the rental income and then on the expenses, what's been going on with payroll or landscaping and so on and so forth. And then the second thing he does. He takes that rent roll spreadsheet from the broker. He also goes and uploads that into his underwriting model. And now we're taking a look at how many residents are 30 days late on their rent, 60 or 90 days late, mm-hmm. trying to get an idea of what the occupancy is by looking at the rent roll versus what the occupancy number is in the offering memorandum. Sometimes it's not seeing eye to eye and so on and so forth. So that's the first thing that he's doing. So we are looking historically Before we are building a pro forma, looking out the next five to 10 years, however long we plan on holding the property. Because that's when we start looking into the assumptions that are going to drive our five to 10 year business plan. So that is when, guess what? The underwriter, he or she, they're also going to need to know information about the market when they are assessing what should i go ahead and forecast rent growth to be over the next five to ten years what should i forecast pet income what should i forecast the expense line items we all are constantly now talking about insurance as you very well know that as well as payroll and maintenance and repairs and things like that so that is on the forecasting side so it's good to have an understanding you need to have an understanding of the market that's going to help you do the projections of your numbers and things like that. When you start talking about capitalization rates and so on and so forth. So those are the first couple of things he does. Taking a look at the performance of this property on a historical 12 month basis. And then from there starting to build out the projections on what this property can do, which is not only based off of the market forecast, but also what's our business plan for this property over the next five to 10 months. Are we renovating units or are we renovating 95% of the units? And what kind of impact does that have on our projections going forward?
2: If you guys ever hear the term trust, but verify. Oh, yes. That as an underwriter, I get it. You don't want to just go in there and call the brokers and the sellers straight out of the gate. Say, okay, the broker is saying that the owner has renovated 25% of the units. So let's take that for gospel and say that they've done that. So I've seen you and Haith do that and put it in the underwriting. But then Haith will point out, I've talked to him on the phone, he's like, Well, the broker said they renovated 25% of the units, but guess what? I'm not seeing any difference in rents in any of the units. So there's no rhyme or reason. If they did renovate those 25% of the units that they have, they're not getting any premium. So either that means that they're really, really crummy managers and they really are not commanding from the market the value that they should for the work that they did. Or maybe we shouldn't renovate the other 75% of units because we're not going to get the bang on our buck. So that's... The trust but verify side of it, obviously, we've seen brokers come in and say, this owner is getting $800 a unit for a one-bedroom, and this other comp over here is getting $1,000 for a slightly better kitchen, a little bit better renovation, around the same square footage. That's trust but verify. Hate's going to put that in his underwriting to say, okay, I can get $200 a unit, which doesn't sound like that much for those of you guys that are newer to multifamily, but guess what? That adds up quick. $200 $200 a unit yeah. times 100 units times four months 100, 100 adds units. up to an enormous yeah. increase in top-line revenue, which That's then right. flows to your bottom line, applied to the cap rate, makes that property worth a lot more if you can execute that business plan of doing all those renovations, That's yeah. right. pushing rents by 200 bucks systematically through the market and getting your tenants to agree to pay you more for the value you've created in their right. unit condition and making it a little bit nicer. Now, Hayth's then going to validate that that $200 really does exist. And everybody, as you know, we've been told, there's your comp right there, that one bedroom property over there. And you realize that, okay, that property is two towns away or multiple miles away in a different school system, proverbially on the other side of the tracks, good side of the tracks, bad side of the tracks, whatever it is, or it could be right next door. But we need to verify. The business plan is to take the property from A to B. And the question is, what is B? So let's look at other properties in the market. Hayes told me that he's gone in on apartments.com, on the websites for these properties. He's even, just because he's a data guy like this, he's called them. Think about that. Hey, I yes. work for Grossa Group, and I'm trying yes. to evaluate apartment buildings in your market. Looks like you've got some one bedrooms. Can you tell me the condition of your ones? Think about the cojones there, you know. Yes.
1: He calls the comps. Absolutely. Yeah. No, listen, that's part of the homework, if you will. And he really, really enjoys it, but it's drilling in. It goes to your point, man. in regards to trust, but verify. The broker is going to present this property in some really, really bright LED lights because
0: <laughs>
1: <laughs> they want you, the potential buyer, to buy this thing. going to make it look real pretty. I know that we've looked at properties and the offer memorandum shows a Big, beautiful, extremely clean, Olympic-sized swimming pool. And then we go to visit the property and like, wait a minute. There's bicycles and lawn chairs at the bottom
2: of this pond. Well, we did a deal over in North Carolina where they had Photoshopped the pictures. Remember that? They Photoshopped yes. the pictures of the pool. And we go right. out there and the swamp thing was about right. to come out of this pool and the pool needed 60 grand worth of renovations work, but in the pretty little pictures, it's right. blue waters. They had a floaty in there and everything like that. It was ready to go. It's like, kids were in the pool. Those beautiful things. Oh yeah. Yeah. It's just everything was ready to roll in that, it's but you heavy walk heavy. out to pool like, this does not match right. a photo. No. I don't no, know. we at the right huh. property? <laughs> yeah, I know, right? Can I get it's the directions that's... to that pool? Cause this yeah. is not that pool. Yeah, May- maybe this, that pool's on the other side of the complex or something like that. Anyway, all right. joking aside guys, that needed to get verified trust but verified to <laughs> your point
1: in regards to number of units that have been renovated right now trust but verify that guess what that works the other way around also yeah. where all of a sudden the broker tells us you know let's say if there's 100 units on the property and the broker tells us that 55 of the units have been renovated we go ahead and take a look and set closer to 70 75 all of a sudden we realize well there's nothing left to squeeze out of this yeah so even if you can get value of the remaining 25 units that have not been renovated, it's not enough to go ahead and provide attractive returns for us. Or Yeah,
2: there might not be That's enough work to do. Fantastic. And that, if the business plan in this day and age at today's cap rates and today's interest rates, and this is true anytime, not just today, but yeah, exactly. yeah, I mean, typically you got to do something. Yeah. I mean, I've heard a friend of mine say, you don't buy good deals, you make good deals, right? <laughs> so you, you need to have a plan to take the property from A to B. It's rarely going to just buy it at A and get behind the wheel and drive. You got to do something to it to make it a value, right? And if that something is not there, then it might not be worth it. So there's all that validation that you got to do to determine that if I invest X in this property, I will yield Y in increased revenue or in decreased expenses. Few mm-hmm. decreased expenses items that the brain is going to look at is maybe utility conservations. In mm-hmm. some states passing over utility expenses over to the tenants through technology called Rubs, ratio utility billing systems. I think I got that right, Irving. for what RUBS stands for. Did, well. did yeah. I get it right? Tell yeah, them which one. I want a prize. Okay, cool. All right. It's, it's That's rubs. Some states that's legal and some states it's not. But there's other things you can do like low flow toilets, LED lights, those kinds of things to reduce your utility consumptions. There's other things you can do to reduce operating expenses overall. So those are things you do to open up NOI and do your value add. Then there's other research that they're going to do. Irving, tell me when you buy a piece of property, real estate taxes are guaranteed to stay the same for the next 15 to 20 years, typically on a piece of real estate. The local government will guarantee it. Is that true? That's how it
1: goes? No. Furthest thing from the truth, in your projections on how this property is going to operate over the next five to ten years, you have to have an understanding of the local real estate property tax laws. How do they change? What affects it? And when do they change? And every state is different. Please, yeah. please, please. South help. Carolina
2: is crazy. Woo. I mean, you got to be careful there. It's fine, guys. We shop in South Carolina for assets, but I'll give it an example. And there's ways around this, not to get too complicated. But typically, if you buy an asset in South Carolina, your property taxes get reassessed to your purchase price number, day closing. Congratulations, you got a new tax bill, right? So if the prior owner bought a property for $5 million and their taxes are X and they've owned that property for a while, And then you go buy that property from them for $10 million, double what they paid. Your taxes will also double. Congratulations. Tell them what he's won. So you need to find out what the local rules are. Most of the time, states and local municipalities will reassess property value on an ongoing basis. We've done deals where the taxes were being reassessed inside of a year to 18 months. Part of the underwriter's duties is to find out when that reassessment happens and what the tax reassessment protocol is. Because they're going to underwrite the deal to likely future taxes, or if they're really savvy underwriter, they're going to underwrite to today's taxes for a little while, and then the tax bump when we believe it's going to happen. So that's a major part of the underwriting process, and we've seen real estate taxes make or break deals, correct, Arvay?
1: Absolutely. We underwrote the deal a couple of weeks ago, and unfortunately, we had to pass on it because... The reassessment of this deal was going to occur in 2025 and it was going to be a large, large increase. And it just yeah. really went ahead and took away from the returns because it was still within the three years that we had right. not yet refinanced that deal. So I wonder uh, why
2: they were selling, Hervé. I yeah. wonder <laughs> why. <Huh. laughs> The taxes were going to go up drastically into two years from the time you were looking at the property. Huh. A good move on the seller to sell, right? That's That's it. Um, And maybe it gets baked into the purchase price, or maybe you catch someone who is not someone listening to this show. Maybe someone else out there that doesn't do their homework or whatever, goodness for them, ends up buying the property, not realizing the taxes are going to go up drastically. Don't let that happen to you guys. Do your, your real estate tax research, right? Absolutely. Now. Going back to Hi 5 Verve again in here in his strong standard for us as a company for buying again and again and again in specific markets. What that allows us to do is if we're looking at yet another deal in the Piedmont Triad in North Carolina, we probably already know what local rents are. So if, if you go at us and say, okay, I've got this asset that's achieving this rent, we already know what the rents are because we already own there. And so a big value the underwriter can do is sure he'll do market research, but he's also going to look into our rent roles and assets we already own and determine if this property is a comp for something we already have. right, So how else does market data for stuff that we're already invested in, how else does that help us in, in the underwriting process?
1: Well, market data really helps us, again, when it's time to go ahead and build out our projections and understanding where we believe rent growth is going to happen over the next several years. Is this a market where the hourly wages for maintenance personnel working on your property is going up and how that's going to Well, everybody
2: earns the same across the country, don't they, Irvine? The same wage is X amount of dollars per hour for every job, right? right. Of course, I like to people like to make jokes like that. Things are completely obviously not true, but let's not make those assumptions. In you guys assuming that a labor technician gets X amount of dollars an hour in a deal, and that doesn't change by the market, you're being as naive as I am pretending to be here. So you want to know what the labor rates are in the market that you're in. And if you're invested already in that market, you kind of already know about what it's going to take to get the work done. So that's what's great about market focus.
1: Right. And you know, all of this, you have to take into consideration, right? I mean, again, this being a cyclical business, there's times when There's shortage on materials, um, and it's time to go ahead and renovate these units, and we're going to go ahead and put in brand-new kitchen appliances, and oops, shortage on refrigerators, (laughs) shortage on stoves. And now, all of a sudden, the amount of units that you had expected to renovate in a given month is being held back because you're still waiting for materials to come in. Sometimes there's not as many workforces, as many maintenance personnel on your property that you expected. So what would have taken perhaps two weeks to go ahead and renovate is now taking four to six weeks to renovate. Well, that is your property now not being able to capture that higher rent for an additional two to three weeks. Right, that's having a negative impact on your numbers. So these are the things that you certainly need to investigate, and that's going to be driven and that charge is going to be led by your brain, your underwriter. Your underwriter, yeah. So now he or she they're going to have to rely on current market information to help them assess and underwrite some of the issues um, that they're going to run into in underwriting that property.
2: So a few other items here, guys. Insurance, Irving, now you make a joke about it. Insurance has gone up quite a bit, and it will continue to, right? And that's partly due to an increase in the real estate market, partly due to the increase in construction materials, the increase in labor, because, God forbid, your property gets hit by a hurricane, tornado, whatever it is. The stick of lumber that's needed to put your property back into good working order is now more expensive. So that means the insurance carrier, rightfully so, should be charging a little bit more, to insure you to get a stick of lumber at today's numbers versus five years ago numbers. Everybody wants to pay prices five years ago. I understand that, but insurance has in some ways rightfully so gone up. Maybe there's a little bit of a money grab going in there too. Capitalism 101, God bless them. But for one reason or another, insurance rates have certainly gone up, especially in low lying coastal areas on the East coast where we are. places like Wilmington, North Carolina, Charleston, South Carolina, Savannah, Georgia, Those markets that are low-lying coastals, meaning low altitude, right, low-lying, and on the coast, Houston, Texas, now these markets are not going to go anywhere, people are going to continue to live there, but the cost to insure real estate in those markets is going up, not just those markets, cost of insurance, period, has gone up. So you cannot make the awful mistake of looking at the current owner's insurance burden and saying, well, they're paying $300 a unit, current owner, so I can just either assume that policy, call their carrier and ask them to give me that policy, or whatever it is. I can just assume that my insurance costs are going to be the same, right? Insurance has become so folks used to do that. Right. And that was a safe assumption to make. But you can't do that anymore, can you?
1: No, can't do that anymore. And this is where having a rock-solid insurance broker on your team truly, truly helps out, that you can reach out to him or her let them know this is the property that you're interested in buying they're going to probably want to take a look at the underwriting and whatnot and of course the address and then from there they're going to go ahead and shop for you and whatnot but yeah. they'll be able to come back to you within 24 to 48 hours and give an estimate of how much insurance is going to cost and boom you can take that number and put it directly in your underwriting if you want to be more conservative you can bump that number up by 10 to 15 yeah. percent but nowadays That is a make or break on whether or not you can really move forward on a property and whatnot, simply because the insurance on a per unit basis just may price you out of acquiring that property, right? So it's something I think, and listen, that's before you started any renovation, any repairs, and so on and so forth. So it's something that we're all dealing with it, whether you are acquiring a property in a coastal area, whether you are acquiring a property inland. A lot of our stuff- Up in the mountains. Mountains then insurance rates will still wind up increasing and whatnot. Yeah. So you just you have to
2: adjust and plan accordingly.
0: You do. Yeah. Great tips. We'll get back to the show. with the first, some sponsors I'm confident you'll find value in learning more about. Are you raising capital for commercial real estate ventures? To make sure you comply with security laws and structure your deals correctly, talk to syndicationattorneys.com, your premier legal resource real estate syndicators and fund managers syndicationattorneys.com dedicates its practice to helping real estate syndicators and fund managers legally raise capital from private investors. Their experienced team has helped create over $2.75 billion in security offerings, making them industry leaders in the capital raising space. To get a free copy of their book, How to Raise Capital for Real Estate Legally, go to syndicationattorneys.com or text the word FAIRLESS to 844 796 3428. That's Fairless, F A I R L E S S, to 844 796 3428. Launch and grow your business with syndicationattorneys.com today. This offer is not valid to Florida residents. So,
2: guys, summarize it all up on the pro forma side of the business, and we got to make a transition here. And you guys want to hear this and hear what's next here, but just to sum it all up, and we've talked about so far. What you've done is you trust but verify the numbers of the current owner's given you. It's very hard to look at a deal, by the way, and this has happened to us, but looking at a deal, by the way, Herve, that seller doesn't have this stuff. They don't have a rent roll and a T12. Now, sometimes most folks on larger assets are savvy enough that they have these kinds of things, but we've had plenty of sellers claim that I don't have a rent roll. Mom and pop back in the napkin running it. T12, I don't know, right? You know, we'll see. Now, you either need to make your own assumptions in those cases. You need to either ask for the direct bills or, Well, give me the utility company's phone number and I'll have them send me the bills and I'll do the underwriting. And you need to do a little more detective work. So it's possible to build out a rent roll T12 and a performa underwriting even if the seller doesn't give you this data. But unless something's really, really wrong, you have to be a little more cautious if they don't have everything you need because they could be trying to hide something or there might be something missing that they're not aware of that you're going to discover. So you can still underwrite a deal like that. just got to be a little cautious. You're going to total up the business plan. Look at where the property is. Look at what you can bring it up to condition and revenue and expense-wise based on the market. The broker is going to give you some guidance on that. Trust but verify. Doing your own research. As everybody said, you do the photo comparison. Look at the pictures of the property you're looking at. kitchens. And the the pictures on apartments.com of the property right down the road. Don't be misled. Be very
1: careful. Oh, yeah.
2: Watch for Photoshop. Right. The bus, the uh, Watch out for Photoshop. And eventually, if you guys like the deal, you're going to go and go to the property and walk it. I forbid anyone listening to this podcast to submit an offer on a property you haven't put boots on the ground on. We're just talking about doing an analysis up until you make that offer. We have another episode on making offers and everything like that coming at you guys. But right now, this is about doing your analysis up until that point. So you've built out a Performa, which is a financial model that is, in essence, your business plan. I'm going to take rents from X to Y. I'm going to run in with these levels of expenses. I'm going to manage it in this manner under this labor force and I'm going to do all these things. Then there comes a whole nother angle here that I want to transition with you to and that's finance. Then I got to buy it. I got to buy the asset and I'm going to need to borrow money, likely from a bank, to purchase the asset. And there's not just one way to do it. Talk me through the different finance options. And I know some of these have become way less exciting these days, (laughs) but just make it more macroscopic sure. on the different finance options that people have when they're looking to buy multifamily.
1: A lot of that comes to the bigger the property. I'm not recommending anyone rush out and buy the biggest property that they can purchase. Not yet, but the bigger properties are going to have more options. When you start talking about smaller properties, limited options, but also good options, right? Yeah. Good but limited options. Small community good banks. Options. That's exactly what I was going to say. Small community banks, credit unions, things yeah. and banks, and so on and so forth. So those are some of the limited options, but very good quality options that you will go to in financing the debt to acquire a
2: small to mid-sized multifamily. If you caveat uh, before we transition to bigger, right? Sure. You're likely going to be signing a personal guarantee is what it is. Yes. A small bank like that is what it is. It's okay. Get used to it. Personal guarantee just means that your personal guarantee, your personal stuff and personal assets are part of the collateral that the bank could come and decide that is theirs if you don't pay them back. So there's that. You are likely going to be... A little bit, maybe higher interest rate, but maybe higher loan proceeds. Maybe Uh, you're also likely to get a mandate from the bank that you have to open up a depository relationship with them. So security deposits, operating accounts, those kinds of things that you have at the property are likely going to get moved to that bank in exchange for them giving you the loan. I've done a lot of small community bank loans in my years. You learn how to do the dance. What's great about it is you're going to walk into that bank branch and get this look eye to eye with the person that's going to lend you the money this is the transition point. They tend to get a little less excited the bigger your deal gets, which is where maybe over, say, like seven, eight, nine, ten million, somewhere in there, they're likely going to lose an interest unless they're a ginormous bank, unless they got their name on the side of a football stadium or something like that. Then a bank like that might be interested, but you're probably going to get a better deal where you transition up to where Irvi's going to take us next into financing a midsize multifamily. Irvi, take it away.
1: So when you talk about financing a midsize multi, right, now you're looking at, if you will government-sponsored type loans so you start talking about loans that are given out by the larger banks but that are then going to turn around and be sold to these government sponsored agencies be fannie mae or freddie mac they purchase these loans from these larger banks so they can go ahead and provide liquidity to the banks as well the banks keeping a lot of those loans off of their balance sheet and so on and so forth so Typically, Freddie Mac, they were going to be purchasing loans from smaller banks, and Fannie Mae is going to be purchasing loans from the larger banks. That's pretty much the difference between the two. Yeah. Both of them offer a myriad of different kind of loan products, if you will. There are green loan products where if there's a certain amount of efficiency that's put into your property, they're going to give you a haircut on the rates. Obviously, both of them have a social component to their existence, so they're very much in support of financing and lending out to purchases of affordable housing opportunities and whatnot. There are those that are going to give you more favorable loan quotes if the residents in your property if they have a median income slightly below the entire average median income of the market in which you are purchasing that property so this is not affordable housing but just a little bit lower uh, median income than average median income and so on and so forth so there's a lot of different loan products a very good loan broker just like we were talking about insurance broker but having a very good loan broker is going to help you uh, introduce you to those different kind of loan programs from the larger commercial banks. And then there's something I'll call CMBS loan, collateralized mortgage back security loans. These are loans that essentially are again given out by banks, but it's not on the bank's balance sheet. So they can give you a little bit better loan terms on the loan for your property. Life insurance companies, even provide loans to large purchases and whatnot, but those are going to be not as attractive loan quotes because life insurance companies don't take on the same kind of risk that the banks do, and so on and so forth. So depending on the size of your loan, there's going to be a myriad of choices. The smaller ones, again, the savings and loans, and the, yep. knows, the local credit unions, the bigger
2: ones, Fannie, Freddie, Mac. And wow. CMB, my now, month. okay, Irving, now those are all for fixed interest rate yeah. deals, deals we're going to be going in. Fannie and Freddie are government-backed agencies. Their dedication is to provide and keep housing affordable in America. So their rates are about as low as you're going to get, non-recourse, not mean no personal guarantee required for most of the things you just listed. And that's all well and good. But however, <coughs> However, how well. however. Now, I know they've kind of fallen out of fashion these days, but these kind of loans are going to be here forever and ever. And these are loans that are for properties that need a little bit of work. If you're wearing a long sleeve shirt, you're going to have to roll those sleeves up because these are properties that are likely performing below 90% occupancy that have a little more hair on them, so to speak, and that are going to need a lot more work, maybe a little more investment in construction to bring around to the promised land. You know what I'm saying? So you will go into something on this. And the nice way to call it is a bridge loan. A bridge is a lovely thing that you cross to go from where you're standing to where you want to go. And these bridge loans are on small deals, what you would call hard money. Or you might get a bank to provide a small short-term bridge to you, and they would lend to you on your purchase price and on your construction. And this is the way a lot of this industry was run for many, many years. Now, bridge loans have fallen out of fashion because they're floating rate, meaning the interest rate is 1% thing one day and then literally tomorrow or next month or whatever it is, it's a different rate. And in today's economy, interest rates have gone way up. So bridge loans have obviously gone way up as well in cost. That likely changes over time. Maybe rates come back down. But Irvay, when people enter a bridge loan, you don't want to be in a bridge loan forever. Mm-hmm. The end game is you want to exit, right? right. You do Absolutely.
1: Yeah. you want to exit and typically... That exit is going to be able to be triggered, if you will, once you have done the renovations on your properties that has resulted in an increasing of the value of that property. Why are you so interested in increasing the value of that property besides providing a nice return to your investors and a nice place to live to your investors, transforming lives, but also to go ahead and put that property in a position to be refinanced. By that lender in, in about two to three years. What are you going yeah. to refinance to? Well, you're going to get out of that very expensive bridge loan debt, and you're going to refinance, convert yeah. to a much lower fixed rate debt. The remaining years. You're you to sell, sell,
2: too, by the way. Uh, I mean, if you've done <laughs> what you're supposed to do, then you've implemented the business plan, and maybe pushed revenue, dropped expenses, opened up the profitability on the deal, addressed some capital improvement issues, maybe replace windows, replace roof, dropped in some landscaping to make the property a much more appealing and more sustainable longer term. Maybe a new buyer might be willing to pay you top dollar based on your new financial performance you created and a resale. And you could use a bridge debt loan to get you from A to B. And again, guys, this is just a snapshot of today's current market. These loans have gotten way more expensive. They're going to come back down. I remember when bridge debt was just what people did. And back in the day of A, you were able to borrow at, 75 80% loan-to-value on purchase, plus 100% of construction. It can be very favorable. They're willing to put a lot of money into the deal if they see what the long-term business plan looks like. So, guys, if you've got a deal that needs a lot of work, make sure you talk to your loan broker about what bridge programs are out there, short-term, long-term bridge, and how you could transition out. All of those things get put into your underwriting model as well. You, you better be using an underwriting tool that has the option for bridge in it and has the option for buying it on day one and then refinancing it two years in after you've imp- implemented that business plan. A good underwriting tool should be able to analyze all those things for you. Survey, so, the last component that goes in, now we've got a good performa. That's been trusted, but verified (laughs) Uh, a good business plan on where we're taking the property, where we are now, where we want to go and what the cost to do that construction is going to be in the renovations, the new revenue streams and the new expense loads, what we're going to put on the property going to be and how we're going to finance all that It's going to be with investor equity. It's going to be with debt coming from a bank, all that stuff. Then it goes back to what we had said before. The last component of the business plan is what is your exit? All good things must come to an end, right? So you got you to conclude this investment at some point with a refinance and then maybe a sale in the future or a reno and then a sale. When you're working with our underwriter, how do you determine what that exit looks like? That's a great question, right? Now, this is
1: when it becomes a little bit more art than science. Yeah, yeah. Um, uh, you know, and- you're looking in the
2: future. You're breaking out your
1: crystal ball,
2: you know? That's exactly what we're doing,
1: right? we're we're making an estimate on the capitalization rate in the future of the year that we're going to be looking to go ahead and sell the property as to what we could potentially go ahead and sell the property for. Now, if we've executed correctly on our business plan, then we would have increased the value of the property and as such... You should see an increase in the capitalization rate and whatnot, because you would have really inflated your NOI. A lot of times, however, when it's time for you to prepare your underwriting and now you're presenting it to a loan broker or a loan officer, they actually want you to be very conservative in your underwriting, as banks are conservative on a risk-reward basis. So they almost like to see a decline in that cap rate because they want to Make sure that, again, you're being very, very conservative in the underwriting. So that is, I'm not going to call it counterintuitive, but it's typically the opposite. Yes, we are conservative in our underwriting. The banks want you to be even more conservative in the underwriting because it has to make sense for them that particular exit strategy.
2: Absolutely. Guys, it also goes back to what your long-term business plan for your company is. You need to work with your partners and and the other seats on the bus, so to speak, your hammer, your asset manager that's going to be implementing a lot of the plan that you came up with here, your money person to what they're telling the investors that you're going to be doing, and your your hunter to determine where the long-term future of the market is. All those factors and conversations with your team are going to dictate Are we talking two, three-year hold here? We want to get in, get out, provide a big bump in returns, maybe not lots of cash flow, but just hopefully a big bump in appreciation. What's our goals? What are we looking for? Are we looking for appreciation, cash flow, a little bit of both? I don't know. Those things will govern the end of the plan here, right? And as everybody said, there's an art here. There's conservatism that you can put into your deal to make sure that you're safe. And there's conservatism you can put into your deal to make sure you'll never do a deal. You gotta take a little bit of risk, but you also have to protect yourself and your investors. And that's what's great about the push pull that happens in underwriting a little bit, which is why you can't allow your underwriter only. Underwriters, their mental wiring tends to be a little more on the conservative side. They that's tend right. to be a little I'm more risk averse, right? Think right. of people like me and Herve who are a little bit like, ah, I built the parachute on the way down. We'll just buy the property and figure it out. But right. You need to have both personality types on your real estate team. If you've got an underwriter that's so risk averse, like I said, they'll talk you out of every deal that ever shows up. It's what if this, what if that, what if this? And you also have people like me and Irve that'll shoot the lights out, right? You right. need to have a good combination of the two. And that's what's great about a good underwriting tool. will allow you to have a little bit of that push pull to the point where you land at a place where there's still, plenty of conservative mechanisms in to keep you safe. And there's also a little bit of aggressiveness to where you actually are able to grow and take down some opportunities. Good underwriting tool and a good push-pull on your team are going to be able to do it. Irving, bringing it home here, what are some of the biggest mistakes you've seen people make when they underwrite opportunities? Now, you've worked with a lot of underwriters in your career, and you've seen underwriters from some of our competitors. So help right. our listeners out here. What do we not want them to do? What are some mistakes that they could be making that we want to stop them from doing right here?
1: Well, one of the biggest that I've seen is people taking the current operating performance of that property and projecting it out over yeah. the next to 5, 7, 10 years, believing yeah. that. The current occupancy at 95% today is going to continue to remain stable at 95% and then grow from there. That's one of the biggest mistakes that I see. Oh, well, if it's operating like this right now, it should operate in the same manner within a couple of years. I couldn't see a bigger fallacy from the truth, to be honest with you. And it's yeah. it's because you have to be extremely, extremely careful. We are so conservative that it keeps us from doing deals, but we are conservative that, for example, What we at DeRosa do, we always underwrite to occupancy declining in the first year of ownership versus increasing. Mm -hmm. It's not that we don't believe in ourselves and the executing of our business plan and our property manager and so on and so forth. It's simply because that we know that we have a renovation plan in place. And in so doing, there's some residents that are not going to buy in and they're going to go ahead and choose to not renew their lease and walk away. And as such, we will gladly take over that unit to start the renovation. But when that happens, the occupancy starts to decline before it starts to increase. And there's Another a lot of times the
2: occupancy saying, drop when the new sheriff shows up. If you're going to be reaching a shop. new property manager, you're going to have a little bit of new sheriff in town. that to like, well, I'm not going to stick around for this. The so right. tenants are going to move out. We found out the hard way that just occupancy tends to fall off at the change of ownership for a little bit. And then there's a stabilization period that it takes, even an occupancy, to bring it back up. You have to plan right. for that.
1: Absolutely. Sure. I would say a couple other mistakes, folks, that I see, Matt, bring making it. On, on the underwriting is on advertising and promotion. Now, you may view this as very, very small. And in the grand scheme of things, when you take a look at all of the opex lines, operating yeah. expense items, advertising and promotion is typically on the lower side. I can't just reach- put it
2: on Facebook for free? No, no. <laughs> no. After I can't do your Facebook marketplace ads for my vacant apartments. No, I gotta actually promote, huh? Okay. Right? You've huh. a plan to
1: go ahead and renovate the properties. Well it's a great plan. You know, I have to renovate the units. I'm gonna go ahead and increase the rents by hundred bucks, two hundred bucks, great plan. But how are you going to advertise that? How are you gonna put that out? Now you have a more, let's say, competitive set out there in the marketplace relative to the comps out there. And now yeah. you need to and attract residents to move into your newly renovated unit versus the other options that they have out there. Yeah. Because after renovation, you've made your property more competitive. It's a good thing, but you made it more competitive. But now you need to get people attracted to come and live in your property. That's going to take some advertising, that's going to take some promotion. If it wasn't secure before, what are we doing in regards to putting security cameras, LED lights around the property? Did we go ahead and underwrite carefully? And listen, whether or not if we've made a mistake, and this is one of the biggest mistakes also that I've seen people underwriting, understanding that you're not going to have all of your numbers airtight, 100% correct, that there's a risk that you underestimated a particular expense. One of the biggest mistakes that I've seen is people not setting aside enough for operating expense reserves.
2: Mm.
1: You must set aside for operating expense reserves just in case. In case what, Urbane? In case that happens. Yeah, in, in
2: case, case something happens and you know something does, right?
1: Young, I don't know, COVID 19 pandemic. Oh yeah, my yeah, gosh. Yeah. Or just COVID-19. setting
2: money aside, right? And then I get you guys have a construction plan, renovation plan, that kind of thing. But it's important to set aside some dollar amount per unit per year. For things like HVAC repairs, for things like roof patches, for things that are just major capital improvements to the site, you don't want to do all that out of the reserves that you've raised for the deal. You want to do some of that out of just set-asides out of cash flow. Those are probably the three biggest
1: mistakes that I see people make. They assume that current operating performance gets projected out. They underestimate for advertising promotion, and as well, they don't set aside any or very little for OPEX reserves.
2: Yeah. And guys, all this plays into, we haven't heard us talk about this yet, and that's because it's kind of like the last component. The underwriting tool that you're going to use is going to add up all these things. It's going to look at the purchase price of the asset, hopefully healthy operating reserve that you put in. Don't be going in with like $2.25 enough to run the property. Go in with a significant operating amount of cash for just in case. It's just sitting there waiting for things to change in case you need it. Construction budget, all that stuff. All that goes into your underwriting tool, the performa, all of it, and it's going to spit out how much equity is left that you need to raise from your investors. You're going to take that to your money person. You sit down with your money person and say, "Okay, I need to raise X. It looks like if we hit our numbers and our well thought out business plan, it's going to produce a Y rate of return for those investors." And here we go. And if those numbers don't work your underwriter should have some conservative levers that they can move well if we can get the debt for a little bit less or if we could raise the rents a little bit more or if we could sell it for another 1% on the back end maybe that's something that would help those investor returns and those are assumptions that are safe to make but the the, the mistake you don't want to make is to model the deal to match investor returns meaning putting investor returns first and saying okay I need to get to a 15% IRR and I have a deal. So I'm now going to build my deal to be inside that IRR, meaning I need to get rents from $800 to $1,400 so I can make the IRR that I need to. Or I need to do X, Y, Z. The worst thing you can do is to build your deal based on an investor return. You want to look at that investor return last you don't go in with it first because that'll cause you to be way less conservative than you probably should it's okay for the deal not to work financially Irve, just forgetting about what year it is now for when people are listening to this how many deals do we typically underwrite at derosa group in one year's time on average oh how many in one year we underwrite we underwrite
1: yeah. between 90 to 95 deals per year yeah I thought we are in the hundreds,
2: but uh, yeah, yeah. give or take, give or take. Yeah. Yeah. But that's, and that's like deep dev underwriting. We get access to a lot more than that. But think about that, guys. You go from that to the LOIs get submitted on a fraction of that, and then those offers get accepted on a fraction of those LOIs. So at the end of the day, it's okay that you don't find a way to make every deal that comes across your desk work. Underwriting is not about finding a way to make the deal work. Underwriting is about building a plan that's conservative enough that you guys are comfortable with it, that matches your investor returns. And if that is the way you go into it, a lot of these deals are not going to price out based on what the seller asking for. Let somebody else buy it. I want you guys to be in this business for decades, not a year. Be in this thing for the long game. And the way you play the long game is by put those investor returns as the last thing that you look at. And if the deal doesn't work to meet investor returns, it just makes your underwriting muscles that much stronger for the next deal that comes up. Right, Irve?
1: Absolutely. It's just a matter of you want to plan so you can play for tomorrow and the next day and the next day.
2: Guys, great conversation today, Irve. Thank you. I hope you guys got a lot out of the underwriting conversation in this podcast. That's very important. It's probably, as I said, the unsung hero, the unsung part of the plan. But it's really where a lot of the success gets created is in well-conservative, well-thought-out business plans. Hope you guys enjoyed today's conversation. If you guys want to hear more from DeRosa, get access to the underwriting tool that we've developed. You can consider one of our student programs. if you guys can hear more about that at DeRosaGroup.com forward slash ever DeRosaGroup.com forward slash best ever and DeRosa is D-E-R-O-S-A. You guys can grab a copy of Irvay's underwriting tool that he's developed that is a free asset you guys could pick up over there at that website. You guys can take our personality assessment that will tell you which of the core four superpowers you are. That assessment will tell you those things. And if you guys want to hear more about our Multifamily Accelerator Program, that is also at that site. Those that participate in the Multifamily Accelerator Program get access to our underwriting tools, I had said before. And they also get direct involvement from the Durosa team to help them 10X their business and take their multifamily investment company to the next level. Herve, love chatting with you, man. Appreciate you. Appreciate your conversations today. Much.